I genuinely believe with every fiber of who I am that as much as we're talking about painful, toxic, scarring things, when people have the courage and the willingness to do the work, they can, they do heal. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. In mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now. In this episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast, we welcome Mati Salzberg. Mati is an LCSW and has over 20 years of experience as a clinical social worker, currently in his Brooklyn-based private practice. Since graduating 2001, he has worked extensively in the areas of trauma. His practice focuses primarily on sexual trauma and sex addiction, particularly in the Hasidic community, a community he grew up adjacent to, leading to cultural fluency in its unique practices and belief systems. He has also worked extensively in Jewish education, teaching both adults and children. In this controversial episode, Mati discusses the hushed secrecy surrounding sexual knowledge, sexual abuse, and sexual addiction, which harms children and families in the community. His goal as a sexual addiction therapist, working primarily with Hasidic Jews, is to heal, empower, and make others aware of the challenges that are faced. Due to its extremely private nature, the Hasidic community has an extreme level of secrecy, and the topics are simply not discussed. Although controversial, Mati opens the door to a world rarely seen or heard from, and discusses the victims of sexual assault and abuse from his years of experience in private practice. Mati's goal is to end and break the cycle of shame and abuse for those assaulted by people they trust. And now your host for the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me here again today. We have a very interesting, controversial topic, and I'm so excited about this. I actually um, reached out to our guest a while ago when I first started. And I said, would you be on our podcast? And he's like, I'll think about it. He was very busy. His practice really became very popular. Unfortunately, for a very sad reason, it became popular, but he's helping tremendous amount of people in the extreme Orthodox world, in the Hasidic world. And we're going to hear more about his work. Mati Salzberg, thank you for joining me here. Thanks so much for having me. I am very excited. I was able to find the time to do it. So a lot of your patients actually became our avid followers of our podcast. So thank you for the referrals. And I always say you can see a therapist even two hours a week, but what happens to the hundreds of hours in between when you're struggling and you can't get through? So that's what podcasts are for and YouTube and articles to get us through the very difficult moments in between sessions. Because I know as a client of many therapists, I would look at that clock and I would say, oh my God. I have only three more minutes left and now I have to wait a week. And sometimes it's right before you crack open something major and you just have to hold on. So those in between the sessions are so, so, so difficult. So Mati, we know each other for a while. I know. And I just want to say, I'm so glad I have the resource of your podcast to give my clients because I know from many of my clients, I'm thinking particularly of one who it's just a lifeline for her in between sessions, like that ability, like you just said, to regulate. So I'm so glad we know each other. 
other, as you started to say, for a long time, but I'm glad that the professional crossover is happening as well. Yes. So, Mati, the reason why I reached out to you specifically for this topic is because you specialize in sexual abuse and sexual traumas. When we met in our house and I said, there's so much going on. You said, Matana, there's not enough time to treat the amount of people that reach out. There's just not enough time. It's a real problem in the Hasidic world, in the extreme Orthodox world. That's the world that you're serving mm -hmm. specifically. And it's a whole different way of approaching it. What we spoke about right before we started, I said to Mati, so what are we going to focus on? And he said secret and shame. And there's so much under the secret and shame. So before we dive in, let's give the audience a little bit of a background about you. So you grew up in America in the ultra-Orthodox world, yes, pretty much, right? That. Yes. In New York. We have some Hasidic background. Yes. My father's family was Hasidic, yes. Some of my father's family. So there's a little bit of their DNA inside you, right? Well, there's a little bit of DNA, but I think it's important in terms of my client base because that's, I'm culturally fluent with the Hasidic community. I, my grandparents spoke to me in Yiddish, which is the primary language for a lot of my clients. So I'm able to understand. Mm -hmm. So I think it's definitely God guides your journey in life. And I, I think mm -hmm. it's interesting how that background then led me to be able to help this community professionally in a way that I don't think I could if I wasn't so familiar with it. Yeah. So understanding the culture, understanding the mindset, understanding the hiccups, understanding so many of the roadblocks. I was just telling you before that I read a book about the Hasidic community and I came from a very ultra-Orthodox background growing up in Israel. And I even went to a Hasidic school growing up in Israel. And I literally thought they were talking about a different religion. Yeah. I, I could not relate to anything they were saying in that book. I said, what is that? That's my religion that I'm part of? How could that be? I think knowing the culture and coming and then I spoke to some people from the culture and they're like, no, it's really like that. Now in the Hasidic community, there's so many different and within the different chains, yes. there's different. So it really goes into the micro, 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 <laughs> yes. but to understanding the shame, the taboo, the secrecy, just how they function yes. is so important. A hundred percent. And I, I think that, like you just said, first of all, there's no, it's not a one size fits all community. There's different nuances and there's different. I also want to be clear because we're talking about sexual trauma and addiction, there are beautiful aspects about this community as well. I, I think very, I very, think, very, I think especially because of what I do and, and the aspect of this community I work with, I know for myself, it's very important to me that I remember that, that there is a bigger picture. There are many beautiful aspects of it. It's a very family centered community. It can be a very warm and loving community with a lot of wonderful traditions and very, I, I'm going to use a word that Today has negative connotations, but I think we could all use some of this in our lives. It's a very wholesome community, or it can be. Yeah. With that said, I think it's also a community that is fiercely protective of itself from the outside world. They very much see themselves as apart from the outside world. It's also a community, and this is something I think that I realize as, as I work more and more with it is really important to understand them. It's a community in America and in Israel that is really steeped and based in one of the worst, if not the worst historical traumas of all time, the Holocaust. Right. And it's very much a reaction to that. And if you have a community of people who arrived after they were literally horribly slaughtered for who they were, they by definition look at the outside world with a lot of distrust, which actually makes sense given their experience. And I think because of that, it can be a very rigid community and it can be a community with a lot of fear around information and perception of what people will think of us if information gets out. 
And so what happens, and this is the dark side of that, is two things. Number one, sex and sexuality, which I think any religious community, honestly, the world at large. Exactly. I want to say it's not even like in general, like we're getting better with it in the last 10 years or 15 years, 20 years, but it's still. Yeah, it's, it, this is not unique to this community, but it's a community where I, I think it is a little bit more extreme than others where notions of sex and sexuality are simply not discussed. For example, I work with clients who, and very often these are large families, who the, the word pregnant is like, we don't say that word. So a, a woman, your mother could be having a baby, but no one will tell you what's happening to her body, literally. Again, visually, you can't hide a pregnancy. It just happens. It, it just, just happens. happens there's and no conversation about it. Even when she's about to give birth, there's no conversation about what's going on. Correct. So again, children are smart and intuitive. And after a few times, they realize, oh, mommy's stomach gets rounder. And then she goes to the hospital for a few days and a baby shows up. But there's no discussion about it. And then very often what happens, and I think this is where the secrecy really becomes, in my opinion, toxic, is that if a child, an eight, nine-year-old child will innocently comment, instead of being gently told that's something private in this community we don't speak about, they'll be chastised. They'll be said, why are you talking about this? That's private. So you have this scenario where a kid is being innocent and, you know, you have children. They just ask because that's what they do. But then the response is that somehow asking the question was wrong, which turns a secret into shame. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, and this continues, and I'm talking about, I've had multiple female clients who no one ever spoke to them about their periods and what that means. And literally more than once I've heard from people I work with thinking that they were bleeding to death when they got the first period. And then even after that experience being handed, you know, what a pad, pads, but no one talking to them about it and what it means. Right. The boys. It also happens in other communities. No, a hundred percent. I don't. I'm just saying it's very common in the Hasidish community, yeah. but it happens in other communities as well. But it's something that they're used to, that no one talks to them. No, about no one things. talks about it. I think for the boys, so the Hasidic community is very much steeped in a culture of holiness, and that would include trying to avoid masturbation. But again, I'm, I really, I want to be clear, and I think I'm glad you keep pointing this out. We're not here to judge a community, like I said at the beginning, there are beautiful things Absolutely. about the community. Right. But what I've heard from clients again and again, in terms of the secrecy and the shame, is that when a boy hits 12, 13 in yeshiva, they'll start to have these lectures about telling them that they cannot do the avira, the sin, right? The sin. But nobody even names the sin. Everyone has a vague idea that it has to do with the way their bodies are changing. And most boys at that point will discover masturbation on their own, but nobody's naming it. They're being repeatedly told it's the worst thing to do in the world. And then if, which is going to happen inevitably, so a boy is going to get caught doing it, he'll get publicly shamed. He may be yeah. thrown out of the school. His parents will also react with anger and shame. But again, it's this dynamic of discovering one's own body, discovering masturbation, sexual pleasure. These are natural things that not only all people do, all mammals do. That's just a part of life, but nobody's naming it. And it creates a culture of secrets and shame. And I think the real tragedy that then happens is that in these communities, when people are sexually violated, when children are molested, obviously that's traumatic inherently. 
And again, in many communities, when when this happens to children, they don't have the words for what's happening to them. They don't understand just the simple physical processes that are taking place. But I think particularly in this community, there's so much shame around it. That first of all, very often, if the victims or survivors speak out, they end up being shamed as if they're doing something sexual and it's wrong. Yeah. Or they're terrified to say something because they know it's about this area that is, like I said, the, the, sin, the sin. And they don't know how to differentiate between what's a violation and what's their own exploration that this community doesn't want them to engage in. And I think what then happens for a lot of my clients, a lot of my clients come to see me for sexual addiction or compulsion. So very often, just a stereotypical client will, his wife will catch him doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And she'll say, you need to get into therapy immediately, or this marriage is over. Or they themselves, it'll just escalate to a point where they're not functional, where they're compulsively masturbating or spending thousands of dollars on prostitutes and strip clubs, and they put themselves into therapy. I want to tell one like statistic and, and something that I find so heartbreaking. The statistic is, is that at this point of the male clients I treat for sexual addiction and compulsion very often have been molested in their childhood. It's not an anecdote. It's a statistic in a small practice. It's not a scientific study. And my understanding of that and the clinical understanding of that is that there's this cycle of shame and reenactment. And in general, sexual molestation of children is so damaging because it's not what people sometimes stereotypically think it is, where a total stranger grabs a kid, God forbid, in a back alley and holds them down and rapes them. That's the very rare version that does happen, but that's not typically what happens. What typically happens is that someone close to the kid pays them attention, makes them feel special and loved, and then slowly but surely crosses that boundary into sexual violation. But even the sexual violation itself is very often not done in a way that's physically painful. It's confusing because the body naturally reacts. It can feel right. pleasurable, it can, right? It can but be. it feels like something's off, and and the it's not familiar. It's, it's not familiar. Strange. There's no language to it. There's no awareness. There's not even education about exactly. it. Exactly. Like boom. Exactly. And so it very often will kick off a cycle of reenactment and compulsively seeking it out, feeling shame about it. Wow. And, and then I just did an intake before this session, and I was explaining this to this new client as well, that very often when this pattern develops when kids are young, they do the activity, they feel shame about it, but then the only way they know how to give themselves relief from the shame is to do the activity again. And why is that? Because they're keeping this secret and they're in pain and they don't feel safe telling their parents about what happened. And they're living with the secret that they feel like there's something wrong with them. And then they discover that, wait, I can produce this physical sensation of well-being and pleasure in my body. Great. Let me medicate wow. it. So they do it again, but then they feel shame. But how do I deal with the shame? Oh, let me do this again. And that is, I'm oversimplifying, but very often that's how the compulsion develops. But what's heartbreaking, what I often hear in my office, and this is about secrets and shame and why I think it's so important that all communities, and it really starts with families, all parents, really break the taboo of shame around talking about sex and even sexual pleasure. Things that I know, I'm a parent too. These are not easy things to talk to your children about. Forget about shame. <laughs> How about break the taboo that it's okay, that we're welcoming the conversation, uh, not shame. Take, remove <laughs> the shame factor and it shouldn't 100%. even be shame. It should be 
a conversation, just like we're going to speak to them about putting on tefillin, just like we speak to them about turning 13 and you're suddenly getting all the mitzvahs and you're getting all the good deeds and the bad deeds. We have, right? We have these conversations of evolving and what happens and why can we have these natural conversations? A thousand percent, because I cannot tell you how many times I've had a client sit in my office. He's coming in for sexual compulsion or addiction. And I ask him to just give me a basic timeline of the behavior. And he will start by saying, well, I started acting out sexually when I was seven and my principal took me into his office and started touching me sexually. Stop it. And I will gently stop them and say, I want to hear your story. I want to give you help, but I need you to hear from someone, which is probably the first time in your life. That was not you sexually acting out. That was a, that was someone violating you. That was molestation. So he, so this client is coming and telling you that when he was seven, he was sexually acting out. And what does a principal see that he knows that it's a target? What are the clues that they they feel I was sexually Well, no, no, it's more than that. They weren't acting out. They weren't doing anything sexually. This, the first sexual experience they had was the principal oh, molesting was it? them. Oh. But they don't have the language to understand that wasn't me acting out So they're blaming themselves, they're blaming themselves instead of, yes. in, in, they're, they're owning it as themselves versus yes. saying they're, someone violated me. They're owning it as this is the beginning of the pattern. And it's I've literally had so many grown men crying saying, I just was sick as a kid. I just was drawn to this. I was sick. And and it's me saying, no, this that is violation. That is molestation. And I, I think that that's the toxicity of the secret and the shame. And I see it playing out because something that happens very frequently is a client will call me in a panic and say, my wife found my five-year-old son touching his penis. Is he a sex addict? What are we going to do? And you have boys, I have boys. All children play with their genitals. It's normal. And the metaphor I always use for my clients to calm them down is like, can I ask you a question? I'm like, take a deep breath. Like, I want to ask you a totally unrelated question. If you left the house or left the kitchen and left a bag of lollipops on the kitchen table where your kid could reach it, what would they do? Mm-hmm. And the parents say, well, they'll eat the lollipops. Of course they would, right? I said, mm-hmm. okay, so you just need to try to think of it this way. Your child has a body that they can touch whenever they want. And they discover if they touch a certain part of the body, it feels good. Of course they're going to do it. Your child is not a sex addict. They're a growing, developing human being. But when you don't have language to talk about these things, and I can't tell or you how knowledge, relieving. Or knowledge. Or knowledge. The language. They don't have knowledge. They're like, they don't even know what to say. Oh my God, they're calling you frantic. Yeah. They're is freaking, he a pedophile? Is he a, is he a pedophile? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. And yeah. I think that I really feel that this cycle of secret keeping and shame kind of perpetuates in generations. We were talking about this before we came on. It becomes generational because the other thing that I see, particularly in this community, but it really happens in all communities, is that there's a dynamic in family therapy, which I think really plays out around this, which is is that the person who names the problem becomes the problem. Say that again and explain it. When a family has a secret and the secret is really the problem. When someone in the family, when a father's molesting his daughters or sons, right? Mm -hmm. And that is, if I'm a clinician or you're just, from my perspective, from your perspective, that's the problem. The problem is that the parent is molesting a child, right? But let's say the family, for whatever reason, ends up in family therapy and this kid is brave enough to name it. He says that loud, but at night my daddy comes into my bed and touches me. Right. Very often in families, 
that the person who said it out loud will be named the problem, not the actual problem. So instead of dealing with the, you can't have a parent molesting a child, what does that mean? Parent needs to get out of the house, get treatment, et cetera. The kid will be, you're the problem because you named it. You said, if you would have just kept your mouth shut, this family would be okay. If you wouldn't have spoken about it, this family would be okay. And, and that's a very known dynamic in family therapy. And it's always important for a therapist working with the family to keep saying again and again, it's not the person who said the problem out loud that's the problem. It's the problem that's the problem. But what I see very often with my clients is that even when they come into treatment, even when they're working on themselves with at great expense, therapy ain't cheap, mm-hmm. great commitment of time. Most of my clients are in therapy once a week. They're going to 12 step meetings for the addiction three to four times a week. Centers sometimes. Sometimes like inpatient, centers. their wives yeah. are in therapy. Yeah. I have group therapy. They're still shamed. They still have to keep a secret. Now the secret is, is that they're getting help for the problem. And very often, if they go to their families, their parents, or the, or if the community at large would find out that they're in treatment, they'll be shamed for being in treatment. And I want to want to just touch upon something you said before. You said if the child wouldn't say my father is touching me at night, like calling it out, the family it would be okay. What does that mean? The family would be okay. What happens to the family? Well, the family is not okay. But if families in the first in the family's mind, as long as nobody's talking about it, we're okay. We look good to the outside world. We look like a healthy, nice family. So there's no problem here. But what's the danger? Well, the danger is that the danger to the family is that one of their children is being molested by a parent. And that is obviously. No, no, no. I'm saying society. What are they afraid of? What is the family afraid of that they say the family's in danger? Now, now we're not perfect. The family is afraid of, particularly in the Hasidic community, if we're talking about it, that if word gets out that this is a family where the father molested a child, that the children won't find matches when it comes time for them to get married. The family will be blacklisted in the community. This is a community that's very much about the community. So what synagogue you belong to, how nice your weddings are, what rabbi, what grand rabbi you follow. And if this family is allowed to deal with the real problem, which is obviously sexual violation of a child, they will pay a price because they're not looking the part anymore. They don't fit the narrative that the community feels it needs to have. And there will be a price that they will pay. And so very often there's more of an emphasis on keeping the secret than the well-being of the people in the family or the community. And the people who say the secret out loud, they become the problem. There's another issue, and I'm curious to know what you think about that, that let's say the secret becomes knowledge in the family. So the first tier, there's exposure in the family. Mm-hmm. Somebody admitted it, right? Either a child, a wife was caught, whatever. So the first tier, the nest is infected. Mm-hmm. Then somebody in the nest is feeling uncomfortable and, and looking for help. So they either go to a therapist, a rabbi, a leader, Diane. I, I recently learned that in the Hasidic community, they go to Diane. Mm-hmm. They don't have the rabbis, they have a Diane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they are the determining factor of what the family is going to do. You mm-hmm. ask the Diane. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they, we have our mentors, they have their Diane, and that's the way they function. And often, if it's the ultra Orthodox community, it's a rabbi, the Haredi community, or the Diane, or the Rebbe. Mm-hmm. would say, make sure no one knows about right. it and make sure don't tell the police. Right. Make sure to keep it keep a secret. secret. And it could be a teacher. 
It could be a principal. It could be a mentor. It could be a rabbi. Make sure the police doesn't know about it because it's going to ruin the family. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. A hundred percent. And I think that again, so think about the message that gives to the victim here. I don't like to use the word victim. I like to use the word survivor, but in this case I will, mm -hmm. but think the message it gives to the victim, because what the message that the victim or victims are often getting is if only you would have kept your mouth shut, there'd be no issue. Except the victim is deeply traumatized and scarred. And if he does or he or she don't get the help that they need, then they get married and this just perpetuates itself down another cycle, another cycle. And I, I think that I want to say two things. One kind of negative, unfortunately, building on what you're saying, but one that there that I do see some positive shifting. The negative cycle is, is that unfortunately I have multiple clients at this point who were molested in schools as children, who because of the way the community is set up and because of how difficult it is to leave the community without paying a really powerful price, their children are now going to the same schools and the molester is still teaching in that school. And besides for the systemic issue and the fact that this makes me want to do things that I can't legally do and I, don't, I, keep, I take right. my professional <laughs> responsibility very seriously, wow. but I can see in my office what it does from a trauma perspective and how we can, I can do tons of work, but then a client will come in and say, I went to my kid's school. And, and I saw the teacher. And I saw the teacher, teacher and yeah, and this happened to me. It's so toxic on so many levels. And I, I have had so many clients who the treatment is layered around the fear about, but I can't tell this person, but I can't tell that person. What is really needed here is the space to work on the real issue, which is the sexual violation and resulting sexual compulsion, instead of worrying about the secrets and the shame and then internalizing the shame, which just drives the compulsion further. What I do want to say though, is that as a therapist who works with the Hasidic community, I'm in contact with a lot of these Dayanim, or for that matter, the Rebbe's, the grand rabbis themselves. And there definitely is, slowly, certainly not as fast as I think it needs to be or would like, as certainly for my clients, but there definitely is more of a willingness to listen to a professional. Which is huge. Which is huge. It, it can be frustrating. This is where, like we were saying in the beginning, this is where I think my being culturally fluent and just knowing how to interact with this community, just even being able to communicate in Yiddish, because I, and me, I can be a pretty assertive human being. I will push back a lot. I will be very clear that that kind of secret keeping is going to hurt the client. And I can't say I always get what I think is best for the clients, but I think there's more of a willingness to listen. I also have sessions with Adult clients will sometimes want to bring family members in, their parents, because in that community, it's a much more close-knit community. So in a secular community, a 35-year-old adult wouldn't really be interacting with their parents like that. But in this community, it's much more family-oriented, which again, can be a beautiful thing. But in this case, the parent is going to notice, wait, why aren't you going to shul? Right. And the son can't say, well, because I'm going to a 12 step meeting where a typical 35 year old wouldn't need to answer to their father or mother. Why didn't you go to synagogue on Shabbat? So it, it's a more connected community. And a lot of times I've worked with the parents and I see this attitude of, I think that the problem really is, is that my child opened their mouth. I keep on thinking about 
I, I want to say the tragedy of not telling the police. It's a tragedy. Yeah, no, it's really I, a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the victim and usually it doesn't stop by one, right? No. It's a tragedy for the community, for the family. It's just a tragedy for generations, as you said, because the trauma goes to generations, right? And it also needs to be said, it's also illegal. It's, um, it's, right. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> no, but, exactly. I, 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 but I, think, I think that I'm a licensed clinical social worker, which means I'm a mandated reporter. Right. And anyone in education is a mandated reporter and there's a legal responsibility that's not being kept. And those laws are there to protect children and families. And I agree with you. I understand where the fear of the police and the courts and the... So that's where I want to go to with okay. you for a sec. Because le- there are going to be a lot of people that are listening to this that are broken inside because they don't know what to do right now. Right. They know something, a secret, and they are they don't know if they should tell the police, if they're protecting. It's, it's so uncomfortable for them. Let's give a scenario of really what happens when they go to the police. What happens to the family? Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness. Self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others. Essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. So that's where I want to go to with you for a sec, because le- there are going to be a lot of people that are listening to this that are broken inside because they don't know what to do right now. They know something, a secret, and they're, they don't know if they should tell the police, if they're protecting. It's, it's so uncomfortable for them. Let's give a scenario of really what happens when they go to the police. What happens to the family? So I want to take a step back because this is, I'm a trauma therapist first and foremost. I'm a mandated reporter, but I'm a trauma therapist. I think the first thing I want to say as clearly as possible to anyone listening to this grappling with that is that your first responsibility is to heal yourself. And so the first thing I would do is get a therapist by hook or by crook. And, and by the way, that's not easy either. Right. In the Hasidic community. In the Hasidic, I mean, it's getting a little bit it's better. It's getting but better and easier. There's, there's who to ask and where to get the information, which like 15 years ago was probably impossible. Right. It's still uncomfortable, but it's, there's a way. Yeah. But your first responsibility is to yourself. This I'm talking about if this is an adult person who was putting together what happened to them as a child. Get yourself into treatment, first and foremost, because the process that will happen when you go to the police or children's services or make a report is unfortunately re-traumatizing. Now, that's, mm-hmm. that is, this is something I grapple with all the time because you're going to be questioned. If you're going to the police, you're going to the special victims unit most often where you will be questioned by a detective. Now, in my experience, detectives who work in the special victims unit are more sensitive. They understand they're dealing with survivors of sexual abuse and trauma, but it's still, it can be overwhelming. It can be re-traumatizing. 
in the Hasidic community, you're very often going to be ostracized by the community for doing this. And yeah. I am going to say as much as it's heartbreaking and infuriating that the community protects people, but if I am speaking directly to the survivor of sexual trauma, your first responsibility is to care for yourself. You don't need to sacrifice yourself further to fix a problem that is not yours as the community. But what if it's not you? So if it's not you, it's complicated because I, I want to speak to one other group right now, which is parents. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Right. Parents. If you're a parent and you find out something happened in your child's school, two things. Number one, believe your child. Get your child the help that they deserve. Take them to a child therapist who specializes in trauma. Mm -hmm. Let the child know this speaks to what we were talking about before. Do everything you can to give your child the message. I'm so glad you came to me. You mm -hmm. can always come to me. You mm -hmm. did nothing wrong. You did nothing mm -hmm. wrong by what happened. You did nothing wrong by what right. telling told me. I applaud you for telling me. I love you. We're going to get you the help you need. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing you do is raise help. Mm -hmm. Call the school. Refuse to send your kid back to the school until they remove this. This, um, but what if it's allegations? Do, is there ever allegations or not? So listen. I'm just saying, can you imagine like somebody just hates a rabbi and, I and they say he touched me and they're like, there's nothing, no evidence. Do we go and look into it? I Do think, we first fire the rabbi and then, or the teacher or the principal or the mentor? And then we go look and we say, oh, oops. I think it it's, I think it's, I want to say a few things to that. Is it possible that this will happen? Yes. Especially in our world, we hear it all the time. Like they know that it's a treasure. You know what I'm saying? It's, I, I, I want to say to you something that in my experience, I actually don't know any time that that happened. And I, I think that... The risk of not the saying risk something of not is saying greater, something is greater than, And I also right, think right. that there, there needs to be a protocol. If a credible allegation comes forward, I'm not, you don't need to fire people. Remove whoever this person is from being around children. Suspend them. Suspend them with pay. I, this is not because I, I, I agree with you. We could have a whole another podcast about cancel culture and what the mm -hmm. toxic right. effects of that are. Right. I, right. I'm not talking about canceling people. I'm talking about the safety of children. So right. if a right. credible thing comes forward, you investigate. And I think as part of the investigation, that person should be kept out of not working with children directly on the 1%, 5% chance that there's actually harm going on. In my experience, allegations that are not credible fall apart pretty quickly. But I don't know of any story, in the, certainly in the Jewish community, where someone came forward with something that kind of blew up into one of these scandals that fly around on WhatsApp and Instagram and Twitter, that it didn't turn out where there was smoke, there was fire. And on the contrary, I also know many wonderful educators, therapists, youth workers, no one's ever made any allegations against. And I think that's something I think about too. Right. And it could be that it's not a sexual allegation, but there is something that is hurting a child and maybe, or there's something. There's well, my something. point about false allegations is I'll speak for myself, right? I worked in education for 10, 10 years and now I'm working with therapy, right? I've never had anything against me. Now I know the truth mm -hmm. of it is because thank God I would never do that, right? But right. my point just is, is that it doesn't tend to happen against people that something is not off about. I hear that. And I think a child needs to be believed and taken seriously. And for sure. To for circle sure, back to between, right. and right, never right. shame a child for coming to you. Right. So this, I think, is something that we talk about secrets and shame. If you are going to treat the child coming forward or the adult coming forward as you're the problem, why did you say this? What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. You are perpetuating the cycle. 
you are just continuing to create the secrecy and the shame and the lack of information. And it's just going to go down another generation. I tell my clients who are doing incredibly courageous, brave work. And when very often they, they want to throw their hands up in the air, it's too painful. It's too hard. They're up against too much. And I always say to them, I want you to think about the fact that this work you're doing, it's not just for you. You are shifting exactly. the trajectory yeah. of your family yes. for generations. Yes. And the society, because each one that's breaking 100%. a little bit more, they're getting the society used to the fact, oh, it's not the first allegation that came out was like, oh my God. And then the second, and then it became a little bit like something that we get used to. So it's terrible, but that shock value, like that reaction is not no. so each person that breaks it a little bit more is changing what needs to be changed a hundred percent and in and, a very good society. As you said, they're wholesome. There's something so special. And I, I know that, for example, when I told this story of when I have clients whose child starts touching their genitals, that opens up a whole conversation with, with, with between me and my clients, which is, oh. You're right. And I need to figure out how I'm going to talk to my kids about puberty and sex, which they did not experience. Very often in these communities, there is no sex education. And particularly the women get married with zero sexual knowledge. I'm stereotyping and not every situation is like this, but in this community, I find a lot. The women are not given the information by parents, teachers, and girls tend to be more obedient or socialized to be more obedient. Yeah. Very socialized programmed. Programmed. I yes. <laughs> I, yes. Programmed, I think is a better word programmed to be more obedient. So they're not going to look outside the community. So they come into. They don't the even think that they're, that there's anything wrong. They think this is my job. And I don't want to say they, because right. it's not okay that I'm saying they, I'm saying women, uh, female. And I was also, I, I was one of those that was very, very naive with the programming until I said, wait, this doesn't make sense. I was much older before I got married. I did my reprogramming right. and I said, oh my God, this doesn't make sense. Something is just wrong. Now I had the guts. Many women don't have the guts to even think outside or they don't even know that they, they don't know that they don't know. And I'm talking about women getting married without a basic fourth or fifth grade level awareness of their yes. own anatomy oh or the mechanics God. of sex. Yes. And then the men who are not programmed or socialized to be so obedient. So they're not getting it in a healthy, loving, safe way. They're getting it through images of porn or one teen to another. And they come in with very distorted, unhealthy ideas about sexuality and it creates a disaster. And again, if we're talking about what the real problem is, I don't think the problem is certainly not the program to not know anything girl, but even the guy who just did what they're doing I think the problem is a community that hasn't learned to talk about sexual development and sexuality and, and mm -hmm. pleasure even, as you said before. And again, and I'm always careful with my clients. I'm not here to disrespect your community's values. If you want to talk to your child about masturbation in a framework of we aspire to be holy and try to not do this, that's fine. But say that to your kid. Don't send him into a classroom where someone's going to scream at him about the sin and make him feel and like they're going to burn in hell. Exactly. So and the there's a lot of demons that come out <laughs> down that are going to burn the family every time they masturbate. And no. this really is what is told. We're no. not making it no, up. No, you're not. No, you're not. That's exactly it. So then sit your child down, talk about the changes in their body, talk about what they're going to find themselves having an urge to do. And one thing I always just, 
the urge, the desire, the curiosity is normal. And Indeed. when I don't even want, it doesn't even need to be healthy. It's, it's developmentally appropriate. If you give me as a clinician, a 12 year old boy, who's not interested in sex, that's a problem. Then there's something that needs to be looked at there. Why the normal sexual development of an adolescent male is not taking place. But how do we really bridge the gap between the sin and the beauty and the must and the responsibility? There's such confusion about it. And where do I come into the place of how I feel about it? Where is it? Right. I completely agree. And I think it starts with stopping to keep secrets. I, I don't have a simple solution. You just threw a lot of challenges at, at anyone in, in these communities. But I do think it starts with being able to talk about it. My kids know what I do for a living. They know their father right. deals with sex addiction. So I knew they knew. And I remember one of my sons was like, really, we're going to do this? <laughs> and of course, he was mortified. I right. said, simply because I want you to know that we can talk about this. Yeah. I'm not here to give you information because I know you know the information. I'm not stupid. Right. But I want to create. And also a... from early on, Mati, when the, is, there's some kids that ask when they're five, when mm -hmm. they're, they're curious kids. So it doesn't mean you have to feed them the information at five year old and say, okay, fine, let me just tell you everything about sexuality and the evil and the bad and mm -hmm. the scary and whatever. But meet the child where they're coming. Yeah. If they're asking at four or five, don't say, oh, we don't talk about it now. You don't have to do it. And don't lie to them. That is a phrase, we don't talk about it, that I, I want to tell every parent listening now, you want to save yourself thousands of dollars in therapy down the road, never tell that to your child. Or you're not old enough to understand it. Even that is not as bad. We don't talk about that is the seed, is the planting of shame and secrecy. Because a kid who hears that is going to say to him or herself, oh, so this is something I need to keep for myself. And then the next time something happens, they're not going to be, all kids start out unfiltered. All kids are naturally right. unfiltered. Curious, curious. And curious then we teach and them unfiltered. how to be sh shamed and whatever. So they stop asking. They right? stop asking and they stop telling people things. Mm -hmm. And that's where this cycle starts. But I, I, I think what's so toxic and what the point I really want to make today is that don't label people seeking help and growth as a problem. Don't tell people who have the courage to say out loud what happened to them and go to therapy and go to 12-step programs and get help. Don't then turn around and say, okay, you know what? You need to do it quietly. Okay, that's fine. But don't you dare let so-and-so know because it just perpetuates the cycle over and over again and it creates so much toxicity and is literally like you're telling someone in one hand, get better, but then you're holding them back in the other hand. It's the very thing that created the issue in the first place that you somehow want to incorporate into the solution. Mati, there's a big, I think it's going to wrap this point up and I have a lot of more questions that I want to ask, but I want to wrap this up because while we're talking in my mind, I keep on hearing people talking to the episode out Oof. loud and saying, but what about Moser? Like people will do a lot of wrong things behind closed doors or in public or legitimize it. They'll give themselves reasons why it's okay. But when it comes to Moser, and please explain it, you'll explain what it means in the Jewish perspective. It's something they hold so tight. Let's go into that because I think we need to understand what's this big thing that they're holding very holy, which is keeping them from telling the community, oh, there's a problem. Okay. I think a few things. I think just to define Moser, Moser literally means limsor to give over. 
Let me just define it the way people understand it, but it's actually not correct the way people understand okay, it. Okay, so I want to, that's why I'm bringing it up because I think it's so important. It's the perception that many people have that it is forbidden, according to Jewish law, to hand over someone to the secular authorities. To rat on somebody. To rat out someone in a way that they're then going to be placed in the hand of the secular authorities. Okay, and now there is a source. I'm not, I just want to be very clear. I'm not a we're rabbi. We're not a rabbi. We're, we're, not, we're not rabbis. We're not we're rabbis. But, but here's what I do know as a pretty educated professional in Jew. There is, there does exist such a concept in Jewish law, but there are two things that I think people need to know about this and why I very strongly feel. And as far as I know, by the way, any legitimate mainstream Orthodox rabbi will agree with what I'm about to say. Certainly in 2021. My understanding is, is that number one, the category of Mesira or handing over is specifically evolved in Jewish law around governments and societies that were nakedly, openly hostile and anti-Semitic to Jews. Because they were Jewish, not because- Because they were Jewish, they not because of what they did. Yes. There are historically, this is a historical fact, anyone who has a basic knowledge of history, there were certainly governments not people, governments that were nakedly, openly hostile to the Jews, the Soviet Union, Tsarist Russia, places where Jews lived for thousands of years, by the way, mm -hmm. um, Inquisition era Spain, obviously Nazi Germany, right? And in those communities, if a Jew was handed over to the authorities, there was a genuine risk and fear that they would be treated not for the action they took or didn't take, but they would be treated according to a whole different set of standards that were much harsher based on blatant anti-Semitism. And that is my understanding of the origin of the concept of Moser or Mesira, not to give over people to the authorities. With that said, there are many issues and challenges of being Jewish in America, but governmental anti-Semitism is not one of them. Right. This is a country where arguably for the first time since the diaspora, where legally Jews are afforded the same protection as everyone else, where if an anti-Semitic event happens, and yes, there is increasing anti-Semitism, I'm not minimizing that, but the reality is anytime there is something, every government official comes out against it. The police response is against it. So in terms of the instruments of the state, so to speak, we are not living in a society where it's reasonable to say in my opinion, but I think it's a reasonable opinion that as a Jew, I'm going to be treated differently by the criminal justice system in America. That just doesn't hold water. I think that's number one. But what's the perception of what the people like well, a average 25 year old that says, oh, I don't want to be a Moser. I don't think they know what you know about. Exactly. I think they're just saying, oh, you're not allowed to destroy a family and you're not allowed right. to tell on them that they will bring destruction. So exactly. And I think I want to say another. Well, to that point, and this gets back to something I said at the beginning, which is in the Hasidic community, especially though, if it's a community that developed in response to the trauma of the Holocaust, the trauma gets transmitted generationally. And mm -hmm. I do think, and I, this may sound like I'm putting down the community, I'm not, I'm understanding the community. Mm -hmm. The community's perceptions of what government means, what police mean, they do feel genuinely in their bodies because trauma lives in the body. They feel a level of fear and anxiety around American police, American government that's plugged into their bodies in response to the Holocaust. So mm -hmm. I think it's something to be sensitive to and aware of. I also don't think it matches the actual lived reality today, but I think to understand mm -hmm. why in those communities, especially that, it's a trauma that idea is much scarier. 
As far as the question of you're going to destroy families, I want to get back to a point I made before and make it even stronger. Families are being destroyed by not taking care of people who are engaging in these behaviors. If you're worried about destroying families, stop child molesters. I would love to live in a world where I'm out of business, not a world where I'm turning people away because I don't have enough hours. And you, by not stopping child molesters, by not giving a clear message to anyone offending in the community that we're actually going to deal with you and put you in the criminal justice system of the country we live in. They are perpetuating generational trauma. They are just, that's how you're destroying families. If you give me a choice between, yes, the family of a pedophile is going to be affected and that's not their fault. And I understand that. But if you give me a choice between putting a pedophile who's molested dozens of children behind bars, getting him out of a school, getting him out of a camp, and knowing that that ends there, then I'm thinking of the hundreds, maybe thousands of children who will not be damaged and the families that will not be damaged. And the last point I want to make is that along with this principle of Moser, of not handing over, there's another principle also very prominent in Jewish law called Dina de Malchuta Dina, that the laws of the country you're living in are the laws. Mm. We are bound according to Jewish law by the laws of the society we find ourselves in. And in American law, if somebody knows that there is an offender in a school, legally they are required to report it. Legally they are required to remove that person from the situation. That is also a Jewish law. So mm -hmm. it's a very one-sided, narrow-based, not appropriate in my opinion. And again, for as far as I know, many mainstream rabbis agree with me to say, well, most sir, because that's simply not true. And, and I will tell you right now. Do you hear it often in your... I, I hear it. Well, I'm dealing with the survivors, so they are angry and they would want this to happen. But I hear it in terms of knowing that it doesn't happen. But I want to do make a point because very often these institutions will say, we can't report the Meister, but don't worry, we'll take care we'll of it. We'll fire him. We'll take care of it. And I just right. want to say... And it happens a lot. And this is... But, and, and, and if I'm emotional and I get angry, it's because of what I see. BS. I'll say it that way. It doesn't <laughs> happen. They'll paper it over. They'll make promises. You mean they don't, they don't take care of they it? They don't because... take care of it. They will tell people that they'll remove the guy from the school. They'll remove him for a year. The story will blow over. The guy will be back in the school. I, I, I know of stories. I don't want to give details because of confidentiality where parents finally said enough and tried to pressure the school into removing it. And the families that were pressuring started to get ostracized. I'm thinking of one story where the families actually pushed back. And in the end, they got the point person out of the school. And I think the principal was fired, but at enormous pain and cost. For what reason? Why are we protecting pedophiles? You want to talk about destroying families? I'm also opposed to destroying families. Pedophiles destroy families. Getting rid of pedophiles, getting rid of molesters from schools, do not, I'm sorry, it doesn't destroy families, it saves families. I hear you, but I also, I want to give a little bit of empathy here. I agree with you a thousand percent, but I also want to give empathy to the families that don't have the tools. A hundred percent. Now this how, they're just stuck and they don't know how and the fear of oh i'm gonna be kicked out of the community uh, we're gonna lose our jobs i need to move a different school i'm gonna i might have to move country cities and uh, if this happens i spoke to a woman that her daughter was molested and she went to the school and she made a rah 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 she needed to move the community because no one spoke to her 
She needed to move. A thousand percent. And I'm so glad you brought that up again, because that's the point I said before. If I'm talking to the family dealing with this, your Mm -hmm. first responsibility is to yourself. I'm talking to the community at large. My rent before. No, a hundred percent. But they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. A hundred percent. And the first thing to, the, the more important thing to do is get the help and healing you need. And if you, I would never, never say to someone, whose child was molested or they themselves were molested, I would never say, how could you not allow? Absolutely not. You no, are allowed no, no, to 100%. do- No, no, hundred percent. I think this is for leaders, for, for mentors, leader, for educators. hundred Take for, action and invite and say, we are welcoming you to come forward. We're well, just like we welcome our children to talk to us about anything. Tell the school members, come talk to us. A thousand Tell percent. Us. And honestly, again, and if I'm talking to the school leaders and the community leaders, Follow the damn law. Yeah. I, I <laughs> Mandated reporting <laughs> exists and it's not perfect. And I understand that. And, and we could have a conversation about the imperfections right. of it, but it right. is the law. Follow the law. That's yeah. it. But certainly you're so right. And I'm actually really glad you brought it up because I would never, I would, the last thing I would want is a family dealing with this to feel like, oh my gosh, I need to blow up my life when I've already gone through the trauma of the violation. No. You take care of yourself. Yeah. You get yourself yeah. the help you need. And, and and if you feel that the best thing for your family to do is remove your child from the school quietly, get them the help they need, create the safety and warmth and healing in your family, by all means, that you have sadly, tragically earned the right to take care of yourself. Your responsibility is to yourself, 100%. What's the most common issue that you see in your practice that you're like, oh, another one? What doesn't surprise you anymore? Nothing. I mean, at this point, I think <laughs> I, I, nothing surprises me. Really, I, don't, I know that sounds facetious. The, the, the common thing I see again and again is a marriage and two individuals, very often parents, destroyed by compulsive sexual behavior with no insight as to why it's happening, where it started, and how to heal from it. But on a hopeful note. Yeah, I was going to say to you, let's give a little bit of hope. Let's see the clients. So they come broken, the family's broken, the marriage is broken, or the parents are not talking to the child because they're so ashamed. There's a lot of brokenness and fear and shame and sadness and grief, a lot of grief, right? A t- tremendous amount of grief. A thousand percent. But I, but I, I couldn't do what I do if, there, if I didn't have the hope because what I see- I asked you, I say to you, Mati, how do you hear all these heartbreaking stories? And the answer is because what I've seen again and again is the bravery and the beauty of my clients picking themselves up, growing and healing in ways that they never thought possible, that just tapping into human resilience, human growth, human vulnerability, and completely changing themselves. I run, I run group therapy and it's, it cycles on and off, but the group I've had now is running for a pretty long time and it's seven 30 Wednesday morning. So this means I'm getting up at five 45 in the morning to drive and to work. They are also, and that means they they're dedicated also, to it. They are right? also, exactly. And here's the thing though. And here's how I do it. And here's the hope I sit back sometimes and I'm doing this a long time. So it would be understandable if I was jaded or a little bit like, okay. I am watching men who came in that had no capacity to talk about their feelings, no capacity to express vulnerably their emotions, certainly not their care for each other. And I am watching the longer the group goes on, the less I speak 
for the simple reason that it's just this vulnerable conversation between men growing into their selves and healing and growing and challenging each other to grow, but with compassion and empathy, confronting each other in a loving way when they're shaming themselves. It's so, so powerful. And that's what keeps me going. And that is the hope because I genuinely believe with every fiber of who I am that as much as we're talking about painful, toxic, scarring things, when people have the courage and the willingness to do the work, they can, they do heal. I have seen marriages that I thought, oh my God, there's no way, turn into beautiful, wholesome, healthy, mm-hmm. vulnerable relationships. I've seen people, I'm thinking of a few clients in particular right now, who literally in the initial sessions could not get sentences out, sit in my office and describe for five minutes what they're feeling, why they know it's it's not healthy, this is unhealthy, what's bothering them. So it is possible. Nobody's history, nobody's trauma is their destiny. And that's the hope. Because like I said before, when I'm thinking of this client who couldn't articulate anything and is now talking, I did this, I know this was upset inappropriate, but this is what's bothering me and I can talk to someone about this. And then I, I looked at him and I said, so now imagine this is how you're t- raising your children now. This is what your children are going to go into their marriages like. So it very quickly branches out into hundreds of people. And that's the hope. And they wake up then when you say that, they're like, okay, that's like the... They connect to it. It's hard to see sometimes because the work is painful. Like you said, getting out of bed to go... I'm, I'm complaining about my commute, but I'm not the one who's doing the work, right? Right. Right. And the commitment to themselves and to growth and possibility for real healthy connection grows up. That's the hope because no matter what a person has been challenged with, no matter what they grew up with, I genuinely believe it is possible to heal and grow. Mati, how do you do this group therapy with people that are so ashamed if people find out? They all know each other. They're all cousins. I can't believe I'm using the word they so often, but the (laughs) members of the Hasidic community are really very integrated with each other and even talking to somebody, let alone coming and opening up in a group therapy. How does that work? So I think, listen, first of all, first and foremost, we're talking about brave individuals and they have the bravery to do that. I, I think a lot of them, for a lot of these members, and that's what I think is so great about the 12-step community is a lot of these members do know each other from the 12-step community. So they're oh, familiar it's with like each a, other. It's, it's a funnel down to It's you a funnel down to me. But I also think that's the safety of anonymity. That's the safety of if it's group therapy, I talk about confidentiality. I also, anytime someone new joins a group that I'm running, they're definitely not as vulnerable and open initially. They're definitely more scared to participate. It's about learning to trust that certain environments are safe and vulnerable. And I, one of the things, how many times we'll have group therapy and then let's say I'll have an individual session with a member and they'll say, when so-and-so did this in the group, it really bothered me. And at this point they look at me because they know what's coming. Cause my response will always be, okay, great. We're going to talk about that in group next week. And mm. so many of these clients are socialized. What do you mean? Well, I'm not going to talk to someone about a problem I have with them. That's not how, exactly. and that itself can be so healing because I will gently, I'll say, well, listen, You're welcome to bring it up, but I'm just letting you know, if you don't bring it up, I will bring it up. 
And they're okay with that? They don't really have a choice. I think hopefully they trust me that I'm going to do it in a compassionate. If they're coming to you, to your group therapy, they're trusting you as a leader that will do the right thing for them. Correct. Listen, and I do everything I can to earn that trust. Yeah. And, and all of my clients know I have many flaws as a human being, but I also have a freakishly good memory. I will not forget. Like I will, <laughs> I will bring it up. Right. I always see that in bringing it up and the fear they have of how it's going to be received. And if instead they're met with vulnerability and compassion, me doing my job, if something starts to get derailed, to step in, right. that's where the healing comes. Okay. Now I have a very controversial question that I'm going to be asking Matiba, but because it's so controversial and I don't feel comfortable sharing it on an open episode, if you want to hear our next few minutes of our conversation, what I'm going to be asking Mati about things that I've been pondering on for a while. You can find the bonus episode. It's a few minutes for the price of a cup of coffee and you can grab your own cup of coffee and join us. You can go to hopetorecharge.com forward slash premium. That's hopetorecharge.com forward slash premium premium. The link is also in the show notes. So you don't even have to type this out. So just go to the show notes. You'll have a link. It says premium content, the extra conversation, the controversial part of my conversation with Mati. Please come and join us. I just don't feel comfortable sharing this topic on a public episode. And it might be even triggering to some. If you're brave and if you're curious and if you want to know more, join us there. And if not, thank you for joining us. I hope this episode helped you. I hope that we inspired you to think bigger and in a healthier way. And I really hope that it gave comfort to those that are seeking comfort and clarity. Thank you, Mati, for joining me here. Thank you for being a part of this community. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your hard work, and thank you for devoting your life to helping communities that need help with awareness and healing from these terrible traumas. Thank you. Where can people reach out to you? So uh, my website is MordechaiSalzberg.com. Link in show notes. That would be the best place to reach out to me. And can someone go to group therapy if they're not your client? Typically they can, but it's also, I would definitely want to know that they are in therapy and would want to speak to their therapist, but I would need a sense of the clinical picture, but it's not a requirement per se that they're seeing me clinically. Do you work only with males? No, I see women as well and couple. As well, but the women that are married to the sex addicts or women that, is it just them surviving the relationship? The majority of women I work with are the spouses of, but I do work with, I have worked with, and I do work with a few female sex addicts themselves. Or victims. Or, too. and yes, I've worked with a number of survivors of sexual abuse who are women. Yes. Wow. And they're usually married with children and it's just coming out later. I mean, that's typically my client, but it's funny. I'm just thinking now, and I never thought of it this way. The women that I've worked with are survivors of sexual assault. Actually, a lot of them had the bravery before to get off that trajectory of getting married. And like a lot of them. Oh, really? Yeah, which is actually a really interesting point that in my. I think 10, 15 years ago, it wouldn't happen. No, I know, but it's interesting. It just shows the shift that's happening in the world. Yeah. But in my practice, way more of the women I work with had the courage to step off that train than the men. Before they got married, they got to, married. to say, you know what? I don't feel healthy to get yeah. married the way I am yeah. with my history. I want to make sure that I heal before I choose the right partner yeah. for life. Yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. It's an interesting thing. I never even pay attention to that. Thank you everyone for joining us. If you know anyone that might benefit from this 
episode, and I'm sure everybody knows someone, forward it. You might save a life. You might save a family. You might save generations. Thank you for joining, Mati. Thank you so much, What a so fascinating much, conversation. Yes. We will do more. <laughs> okay. Looking forward. Always fascinating to talk to you and keep doing what you're doing because awareness and being open to talking about it is where so much of the healing comes. Thank you. Bye till next time. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. In Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now.